All right, everybody, welcome. This is 20 Questions with Pastor Mike. I'm here to try to answer your questions as biblically as, as I can, as I'm capable of doing. And part of this isn't so much knowing that I have the right answers. There's something, those of you who've been watching this series, of this Q&A for a while know, which is that um, there's something in the process of just working through a question biblically, where even if you don't know everything, you don't get everything perfectly right, you're learning like a skill set of being able to take a question and the Bible sort of being open to you as you process that. So the first question we have today, and it's coming in, um, there's my mouse, from uh, an anonymous source. And it says, hi, Pastor Mike, what does it mean that God is love rather than just saying that he is loving or that he loves us? Now, the Bible affirms all of these, right? It says that God loves us, right? He loves the world. He's loving. That's part of his, his, his uh, character. But the Bible goes a, a step much further than this and says something much more when it says God is love. To my knowledge, this is a uniquely Christian thing. Like nobody was saying this at the time, right? There's no other religion that I know of at the time. Now, nowadays, uh, it's common in New Age and, and some East, some sort of when you have Eastern mixed with hippies <laughs> where you get this like God is love stuff. Um, but that I would consider to be sort of a fluff version of what what is originally true in Christianity, that God just is love. So it's not just that he behaves in loving ways. He just is love. Um, how is that bigger than God being loving? One of the things I'll, I'll say is that love permeates God's very nature. So him being love elevates the idea of God acting loving from, from him acting loving to him being love. I mean, you can, let me put it this way, poetically speaking, you can feel the weight of this idea that God is love. Like you can, you can sense it. Oh, well, let me bring my light back down a little bit. Um, and this sense that God just is love, it means that love's an inherent part of God's nature. Now, there's like a metaphysical, like philosophical idea that I'll throw out there that I think is valid and true. And that is this idea that um, that God is the grounding of love. Um, he's the thing that gives meaning and and existence to the concept of love. That is, imagine for a second, say the, the atheistic or the purely physical naturalistic universe. There's no real love, right? There are behaviors that we call love, but love itself is just a label we give to certain similar types of behaviors. The, the concept itself doesn't have grounding. There's nothing that's giving existence to love as a morally good quality. But God is love. Here's the metaphysical, philosophical thing. Because, um, because love exists because God is love. That is, there isn't, there isn't this thing outside of God called love by which you measure God's actions. Rather, God's nature is love such that love outside of, of, of God can exist by comparison and grounding in his eternal unchanging nature. Because you see, in, in um, if you look at like layers of reality on a Christian worldview, you've got like, uh, you know, you and me here now in the present, then you've got like sort of, you know, the, the things sustaining us, right? The universe, uh, air, all, all this stuff, the earth and water and things like that. But then you have to ask like, is that all there is to reality? But if, if you were to strip away all of these things, you, me, all these contingent things, these things that exist because of something else, what you would end up being left with isn't an empty space because even space itself, okay, forgive me for getting a little in the weeds here. Um, space itself is something that is a created or a contingent thing. So you would actually not even have space. There wouldn't be a place. There wouldn't even be an emptiness. 
What you would have at the end on the Christian worldview is just God. Just God as the ultimate reality who then creates all things. So love can be part of ultimate reality because love is part of who God is in his very nature. So this is, this is a beautiful and wonderful concept. Um, it's a constant quality of God then. It's, it's not a transitive quality. God isn't like his anger is for a moment, right? But his, his love is everlasting. This is what scripture tells us. And there's an element of this that connects to that fact that God is love. He is always constantly loving. <clears throat> his anger, his his um, judgment are in response to specific sins, violating goodness, which I think is part of an expression of his love as well. But um, but his love is eternal. The This also connects to the idea of the Trinity in a fun way. Okay, so <laughs> I say a fun way. I think it's fun. I think it's neat. The, uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is that God is tripersonal, that there's, God is three in one. He's not three and one, like he's one plus one plus one equals one. That's not, I, I don't think, a careful understanding of it. But rather, God is three persons in one being. And this might seem like a confusing concept to many, and that's fair for you to be confused by it. But you can acknowledge one thing. If God is tripersonal in eternity past, this allows God to be love in eternity past. Because love requires relationship. If you're alone, you can't really express love. If you're completely and utterly alone, there's no way to express love. There's no one to express love to. But God is tripersonal, so he's always able to express love within the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing that um, is also unique to Christian doctrine, to what we get from Scripture. Um, let me see. There's a couple more things I'll mention real quick. Um before we go on to your guys' questions from the live chat, there's um, uh, a way to see all of this. Um, God God chose to have the universe, a universe. Think about how he designed and made the universe and his plan of salvation for mankind and how it demonstrates his love, that God just is love. He chose to have a universe where everyone would choose to love him or not. Everyone would have a free will choice to love or reject God. This preserves freedom in a love relationship. He would offer forgiveness and massive self-sacrifice that he would offer widely to all people, even those who would reject. Um, love that is rejected is, is, a, is a unique kind of love. Loving those who reject you is, is a very gracious and, and loving thing to do. And that's something God put into the salvation story of mankind. Um, he shows real love because he has the cross become the center point of our salvation, our relationship with God. It's, we're glued together by Jesus who was fixed to the cross. You know, he suffered shame and horror and pain and all, all sorts of despair and the, the, the guilt of our sin, uh, the consequences of all those things fell upon him. So can you see how this connects God's love to his eternal relationship, not only within the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, but the fact that God is love connects to our relationship with him because it's a relationship that's founded and built upon and based upon love from beginning to end so that we then enter into eternity, which is going to be a glorious, perfect relationship with God and each other in love. This is because God is love. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. And you can see how it connects to our call as Christians to love and forgive others, even those who hurt us and wound us, even those who hate us, even those who strike us, even those who curse us, to, to bless them, to pray for them, to be kind to them, because God is. And then we will be, as Jesus said, we'll be sons of God, we'll be children of God if we reflect that attitude that God has. So amazing stuff. So this is different than saying love is God. Um, that's kind of the hippy dippy thing going on there. So love is God, um, would, would make love separate from God. Love 
becomes its own thing. Rather than love being dependent on God, that's what God is love means. Love is dependent upon and flows from the very nature of who God is. Um, but when you make love God, which many people do, whether they uh, do it knowledgeably or not, what happens then is love becomes independent of God. And so then, and you see this with some people with their complaints about God and their their anger towards God because they feel as though God has not treated them rightly or done good for them. And I'm not saying that they don't have real struggles going on there. I'm not trying to just cast aside the incredible pains of life. What I'm going to suggest here is there's no love or loyalty to God in this formula because love is independent of God. Love is separate from God. It's like the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament. They're building this great thing, but it's it's in rebellion to God. So man loving mankind, us loving each other apart from God is a is a a distortion of the nature of love since God is love, right? You, you can't have proper love. There's some kind of love there, but you can't have proper love without God in the mix, without God belonging part of it. There's something missing and it's an essential element of love that's missing. This is part of, I think, why Jesus says, um, this is the last thing I'll say on love, <laughs> uh, that, that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself, that the first command is loving God and the second is loving our neighbor as ourself and they're different degrees of love. I love God with everything and I love my neighbor as myself. This implies there's a hierarchy of loving God first, but if God is love, then that's, that is just what pure love is, is loving God above all and loving others as you love yourself. I hope that that helps you. We'll go to question number two. Thank you guys for giving your questions in the chat. This comes from Anna Boshear, who's asked questions many times. Anna, welcome back. Uh, my church has decided to have two different services, vaxxed and non-vaxxed. I love my pastors, but I disagree with this approach and I see it as divisive. Is this something I should leave the church over? I wouldn't think Jesus would ever be for this option. Anna, first I'll say, um, I... I, I hesitate to try to be the person who's answering these kinds of questions for, for other people. Um, not that there's nothing I might offer that might help you, but I, but I want you to understand my hesitation because I want you to, I want us all to slow our roll. <laughs> not that you're not, okay, you just asked the question, but I'm speaking here to the whole audience who's listening. Um, we, should, we should be slow when we're contemplating things like just leaving a church. Not that you never should, or not that you're glued to the church you, you attend for the rest of your life. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it should be a decision you make slowly with wisdom and then you seek to do it in the least harmful way possible um, uh, and unless it's great heresy being taught, in which case you openly try to bring as many people with you <laughs> as you can uh, for their own sakes you know, because you love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. But um, what I've noticed as a pastor who's seen different church services and the way they're handling things, I've seen the church where everyone's told wear a mask and I've seen the pastors go, Hey guys, I, I know a lot of you don't agree with this and I'm sorry. We're, we're just, you know, we've prayed about it as the elder board. We, we're going to, we're going to ask everyone wear a mask. That's what the mandate is. And we're seeking to submit to government. I've seen others who think they have Christian principles for saying we're not going to wear masks. And then you, you go to that church and if you are wearing one, right. And I'm just using masks as an example, not the vaccine that you actually feel um, uncomfortable, right? Like you feel like you, you are violating sort of a, a, some group agreement that's going on here. And so what I see when I zoom back, being someone who doesn't really fully understand all these issues, when it comes to say the mask issue, when I, when I pull back a little bit, what I see is a lot of pastors trying to figure out how to hold the church together and hopefully not being arrogant and rude as they, as they try to lead other people. Um, but there are a lot of them trying to hold people together. And 
when if, if they heard their congregation talking about leaving or staying over some of these issues, they it would just break their hearts, hopefully. And that's the bigger concern of my heart. Um, I would not suggest leaving a church because they split a church into vaxxed and non-vaxxed services. I don't necessarily agree, but I also don't disagree so strongly that I think you should like, uh, you know, leave the church. Um, maybe there's other reasons why you would consider that, but I, I don't think I would go down that road. What, what I'm going to guess is happening, trying to be gracious to the leadership is that they just don't know how to hold the, t the groups together in the church. If they require vaccines, they feel they're going to divide the church. If they don't, uh, they feel they're also going to divide the church. And so they try to create a space for like people to come to the service of their choosing so that at least for this difficult season, they're not ripping the church. So it may actually be an attempt at unity. Um, and I would want to acknowledge that. Um, you could ask your pastors what they're thinking there. This is a, a tough thing. And I, what I'm reminded of, I'll, I'll share the scripture with you. Oh, by the way, I didn't give you guys the verse. First John 4, 8, where it says God is love. Um, and it implies that we need to be loving too. But let me, let me share with you guys another verse. Um, uh, da, 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 da. I'm going to find it real quick. Clackety clack. Okay, th this is uh, Ephesians 4, 3, right? Um, let's just read this as we think about how we interact on these issues. And, and the hypothesis is, let's say that your church is handling some of this stuff wrongly. Keep this in mind as you're working through that. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, you've been, which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, right? Because there is one body. There is one spirit. So when when we read this, I think masks and vaccines are secondary issues as it pertains to the to the essential of the Christian faith. I'm going to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit on these topics as much as possible, even if I have informed disagreement with somebody else. The spirit provides the unity and us as Christians, it's our calling to maintain it, maintain and to be eager to in other words it's like a priority your your eagerness in your heart to keep that unity this this is a word for all of us an encouragement for all of us uh, thank you for the question Anna. thanks for the opportunity give me a chance to talk about that pepper petunia has a question why isn't the holy ghost mentioned in any of the instances in revelation when praise is being given to the father and the lamb if he's to be worshiped as separate for example revelation 5 13 well let's look at your verse first revelation 5 13 and then I'll tackle that question. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. <clears throat> um, okay. So we have explicit worship here at Revelation. There's been a, there's been actually a song. I believe it's in chapter four. There's a song. Um, let me see to the father. And then in chapter, you know, it's a, it's, it's a song to God, which is, we would um, think is sort of leaning towards emphasizing the father. And then there's another song, right? Holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And right. And he, and he's giving credit worthiness and credit for creating all things. Um, now <clears throat> in chapter five, what we have is a song to the lamb, 
right? And and there, the lamb is the one who can take the scroll and who, who basically he's redeemed mankind. And so he has a worthiness in relation to the cross. So we have God, God's worth in relation to uh, his nature and creation. And then Jesus' worth, worthiness of worship in relation specifically, not that he didn't create, because he did, the Bible affirms that. Um, his is in relationship though to his his death. He was slain and he ransomed us to God and made us kings and priests to God. Then you have like the summary, hey, worthy is the lamb who is slain. Um, to And then you have both of them together. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honoring, glory and might forever and ever. Now, first off, I would say that <clears throat> him who sits on the throne um, should be seen as emphasizing the father, but not totally independent of the son or the spirit, because they're all active in scripture with different qualities, right? Um, also, the worship of the son or of the father um, or even worship directed to the spirit, I think, is glorifying to all of the of the Trinity at all times. And so there's an implication of this in John 5. It's that he who honors the son honors, honors the father who sent him. Or again, in St. Mark, where Jesus says that if you <clears throat> blaspheme the spirit, right, that'll not be forgiven. Whereas, you know, you, 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 uh, who is, who is the final, the final, like, sent one, so to speak, evangelizing the world. And <clears throat> the implication here is that there's the inner relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit such that you don't have to worry about, as your, I think your question stated, separating, right? The, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Pepper, what I'm going to say is this last part of your, your, your question, why isn't the Holy Ghost mentioned in any of the instances in Revelation when praise is being given to the Father and the Lamb? If he is to be worshipped as separate, but we don't need to worship him as separate is, is what I'm suggesting. That that might be a misunderstanding. You know, when you honor the son, you honor the father who sent him, right? When you respond to the Holy Spirit, you respond to the father. When you when you believe in the son, you're responding to the Holy Spirit as well. That there's this interrelated nature of the worship of God. But I will say this. I think you're on to something in that the emphasis in scripture is the worship of the father and the son not directly, not explicitly as much the worship of the Spirit. Not that you can never worship the Holy Spirit, right? He's God. But I'm just suggesting the emphasis is not there. And perhaps the reason is this. The, the method of, of prayer. Um, Jesus says, you know, don't, he's not, don't pray to me. He says, pray, to, not that you can't pray to Jesus. I've talked about that elsewhere, but pray to the Father, right? In the name of the Son, and you're going to pray in the Spirit, Meaning that there's a sense in which um, my prayer, which worship is part of prayer, is energized by the Holy Spirit. My relationship with the Holy Spirit is what's enabling me to have worship pleasing to God. I pray through the Son because he's the mediator between God and man. He's the one who um, connects me to God. And so I'm right with God because of the grace of Christ that constantly covers me. So I can worship him. And then I direct my worship and my, my praise more generally to the Father. Mm -hmm. Not explicitly, um, but there there seems to be this sort of like, if you were to visualize this in a crude way, <laughs> the Father in heaven, the Son mediating between us and the Father and the Spirit indwelling us and in our midst. There's overlap in all those things, but when you think about it that way, this is why worship, when it's expressed, it's expressed towards God because we reach to sort of the farthest point to in indicate our complete connection with God. Maybe that's one way to put it. 
Anyway, I hope that I didn't make you more confused. Um, we'll move on to the next question. Ben V has a question. Why does Paul mention Janus and Jambres in 2 Timothy as being part of the Exodus story when they weren't? Did he have a different Exodus? Is he referring to an extra biblical book so authoritatively? All right, let's look at the passage. Um, let me find the actual verse here. All right, 2 Timothy 3, 8. And I'll back up just a little bit here. This is Paul talking about false teachers and some of their tendencies. He goes, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. No, Paul's not saying all women are weak. He's saying that these false teachers specifically target weak women right? The, they're those who are often um, on their own and all this other stuff. So this isn't sexism, although those who, who would assume it is aren't going to listen to me anyways, <laughs> such as modern day. Um, burdened with sins and laid astray by various passions, always learning and never able to come to uh, arrive at the knowledge of truth. Then he offers a comparison between these false teachers and people from Moses' time. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. So there's a parallel. Now, Janus and Jambres, according to like extra biblical accounts, are the names of two of Pharaoh's magicians. The, this is when like Moses throws, uh, you know, his snake down, his, his staff down, it turns into a snake. And then through their whatever machinations, whatever they skills they had or, 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 or spiritual contact with enemy, the enemy they had, they throw it on their staff and they also turn into serpents. And then Moses' serpent eats theirs. Okay, so this is demonstrating that there, yes, there is power in this false uh, religious system, but it's trumped by the power of the true God is, I think, the the lesson in Exodus in many ways. But uh, but Janus and Jambres, the names are never mentioned in the book of Exodus. So you're like, well, where does it come from? And um, I'm trying to remember which, <clears throat> which book they actually come from right now. It escapes me off the top of my head. But it comes from an extra biblical text that um, the Jews did not think was scripture and, and the Christian church has not thought was scripture. And so the options are open. Okay, look, first thing I, I want to do is I want to acknowledge the scarcity of data in the text. When I, when I want to think biblically, that means I don't want to assume too much, right? So he just calls them Janus and Jambres. Everything else here. It, they opposed Moses is just right from Exodus, right? We know about the opposition. We know about the interaction that I described, the, the, the staffs and snakes and stuff. Um, the names are the only thing that is not in the in the text in Exodus. And so our options are, A, let's survey our options. We can do this when we, when we encounter a text and we're not sure what to think about it. Janus and Jambres are their real names, and their real names are preserved in these extra biblical texts. Um, let's say that that's the case. Should I then think those, because he uses Janus and Jambres, because Paul is then affirming these ex, this extra biblical text is right about this one issue, should I then affirm that that is scripture? Well, no, um, scripture doesn't tend to do that. Like in the books of First and Second Kings, they refer to extra biblical histories, right? The, the, the books of the record of the wars, they refer to things like this, but not in a way that makes those things scripture. And we don't have any sort of angst in the New Testament about like, where are these missing books? Nothing like that. Um, so yeah, they can refer to these things without them being scripture. Another option is that Janus and Jambres are just locally known as the names that the Jews currently have for those unknown guys. Do you understand? Like, hey, we don't know their real names, but 
we call them Janus and Jambres, and everybody around us knows them by those names, even if they weren't their names originally. Now, this would be especially easy to do in the Jewish culture of the time, where often people had many names, multiple names. Names uh, They have a Jewish name. They have a Greek name. They, they have a nickname because there's too many people named Peter, so we'll call him Simon Peter, right? So th this is not a stretch at all to suggest that these are just the names known uh, by Paul's contemporaries. So rather than saying um, those of Pharaoh who had opposed Moses, right, he uses the names that the people have for them. Meaning it could be our name for them in the first century, but not necessarily their original names in the book of Exodus. I'm open to that as well. I don't think the scripture pushes us towards either of those conclusions, but I think the easiest one is these are the names we know them by. Um, <clears throat> all right, let's go to the next question. This is question number five. And we have, we have got all 20 questions for today. Um, we're loaded up, and I'm going to work through them one by one. And uh, I, do I look a little orange today to you guys? Oh, and that reminds me. <laughs> don't, ask, don't ask me why that reminds me. I have an announcement for you guys. If you happen to want to attend a conference I'm going to be speaking at in February, it is coming up. And it's going to be a... Um, uh, an apologetics conference. I'm going to be there. Sean McDowell is going to be there. Um, Natasha Crane and and some others. Um, and I'm just looking for the link to it so I can put it in the live chat right now. And this will be uh, posted on my YouTube channel. At least my my talk will be posted on the YouTube channel and a Q and A I do there um, for free. You guys will be able to have that. And let me just copy the link, post it in the live chat. This is the link. It's in Palm Springs, and. Oh, it gave, me, it gave me one of those links that's like 17,000 letters long. Yes, yes, Facebook follows the link. <laughs> anyway, I'll get you a shorter one. Um, wow, that's why is the link so, so, so long? Um, let me try this one now. There we go. It's only 187 letters long. <laughs> Anyway, the link is called, uh, the conference is called The Battle for the Next Generation. It's me, Sean McDowell, Craig Hazen, Natasha Crane, uh, Lanege Garrison, and John Rin, Rinheimer, or Reinheimer. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. Sorry about that, John. I'm sure I'll, I'll get to meet you in person. Um, you can watch it live online or you can go in person. And my portion, I agreed to do it because it is a paid event, but I agreed to do it with the condition that I could put up my portion for free on my YouTube channel. And you can also... I mean, the event's worthwhile. You could support it. But if you don't have the funds, I want to provide that for you. So there you go. That's going to be a Battle for the Next Generation conference coming up on February 25th and 26th in Palm Springs, California. Where it's kind of cold right now, at least for California. All right. Here's question number five. Neftali Watkinson Medina says, oh, and I'll put a link um, in the video description as well to that same conference for those who are watching later on. Or you could just Google Battle for the Next Generation if you haven't seen it yet. Um, Neftali Watkinson Medina says, In Luke 16, 19-31, we read the story of Lazarus and the rich man, and it seems that the only thing Lazarus did to deserve paradise was being a sick beggar. Does the story... <laughs> um, that's unexpected. Well, give me... Sorry, guys. Give me a second. Because I was searching for links... Um, yeah, something happened. It's, it's, I'm working. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Technical difficulties. Let me just. Let me just. And there we go. All right. Okay. <clears throat> um, does the story teach virtue in being poor? Uh, so Luke sixteen, nineteen through thirty-one. 
And I think this is a great question because a lot of people do teach it this way, especially nowadays, there tends to be that. <laughs> um, um, we, we in our, in our culture, we, at least my observations of human culture is that we tend to either think that the wealthy are more righteous or the poor are more righteous, right? We, we tend to think that when I think a biblical view is that neither is true, right? Wealth presents us with a different life experience and different opportunities and, and poverty does as well. But it's not that one is more righteous than the other. Um, it is great to, to give of your wealth for the Lord, but just being poor is not righteous and just being rich is not righteous. And I think that Jesus combated that view. But we'll look at the text right now. So Luke 16, <clears throat> he talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Now, this is this is the debate is whether this is a parable, like a, a story, just an illustration, or whether it's really an event that happened that Jesus is discussing. And I won't get into that right now, although in my past, I've leaned towards it being an event, but I'm open to both. Um, at any rate, uh, Luke 16, 19 says there is a rich man who is clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Okay, that's... That's the summary of what we get for the rich guy, right? He's He's got purple and fine linen, which means he's got the most expensive clothes. He feasts every day sumptuously, like like an, an American, basically. <laughs> and, uh, at least, well, maybe not the clothes as much. Well, I don't know. I mean, actually, these would be considered some pretty fancy clothes for back in the day uh, at any rate. And his gate at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. This, keep in mind, this has a special consequence in a Jewish culture where uncleanness is, extends to like a, a, a disconnection from other people in society. When you have, when you're covered with sores, you're constantly unclean. You can't participate in various temple things and you need to not have people touch you. You may even need to tell people as they approach you, Hey, I'm unclean. Like, don't get too close to me. Um, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He, so he would just wait by the rich man's house, hoping for scraps. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, this is a sad state of kind of when um, animals and flies and stuff are, are harassing people and they just and they just give up trying to even bother with dealing with it. So it's a really, really huge contrast, the rich man and Lazarus. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And, and that means that the place where Abraham is also, which means the good place, right? Which is not a heaven yet right? But it's a place of comfort. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is a much better translation than Abraham's bosom, which I think is a, um, look, words change meaning over time. And so translations should reflect that. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, it's just Abraham's side. So he's, he's burning, but he can see and communicate with Lazarus, right? And or specifically with Abraham. And he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. I mean, this could actually be a verse to support the idea that after death, there is no opportunity to like later repent. And, you know, the, the one branch of universalism 
is that everyone eventually gets saved even in the afterlife. Um, this implies that that's not the case. Um, then he says, I begged you, send him, send him, uh, I beg you, father, he's calling out to Abraham, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. He's worried that his, his, his brothers have the same issue. Um, and Abraham said, they've Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is interesting that this is in Luke. This is such a, a theme in the book of John that when Jesus goes to his own, his own did not receive him. If they wouldn't hear Moses and the prophets, they wouldn't believe in Jesus. That the way that they responded to the previous revelation of God would be the way they responded to Jesus. That's a whole theme in John's gospel that we often miss when we're reading just sections out of context. Um, okay, now to your question. Now to your question. In the story, we read that um, it seems the only thing Lazarus did to deserve paradise was being a sick beggar does the story teach virtue in being poor um and i think that what we're what we're projecting out of the text with that question is perhaps the um believing that what jesus puts into the parable is is a method by which he earned his place to be at abraham's side to be comforted that's what we're putting into it what we do see is a man who has joy in this life and suffering and judgment in the next and a man who has suffering and pain in this life who has salvation in eternal life and i think that's all that jesus is emphasizing and this is emphasized in luke in particular and it's emphasized i believe in the direct context in luke um i guess i'd have to look more but luke really talks about this where jesus says like store up treasures in heaven um you know not where where, where moth and rust do not destroy don't you know be be afraid of not him who can kill the body but him who can who can kill the body and the soul and um in hell and so th these are statements of Jesus about about um choosing between this life and eternal life and Lazarus and the rich man shows that all the blessings the rich has in this life do not indicate anything good about their eternal state and all the sufferings of the poor in this life do not indicate that they are somehow cursed of God or something like that. For those who wait on the Lord, there's a place of eternal comfort. And for those who ignore him and reject him, there is there is suffering. And so I think we're just going beyond the text. And this is something I think that happens a lot in the parables in particular. The parables of Jesus are often used to get theology that I don't think they're intending. So the, the prodigal son is often used by progressive teachers. They, they want to suggest um, all sorts of things that I don't think that the text is implying there. And so uh, anyway, this happens a lot. And so I'll just mention that like holding ourselves to what Jesus is saying and not going too far beyond it is really helpful here. There's nothing in the text that says that the beggar deserved a, to be in that, in that place of Abraham's um, comfort. It just doesn't say it, but he received it. So the contrast is, this life, suffering, eternal life, comfort. And then Jesus is encouraging people to take up their cross and follow him, which would involve suffering in this life. It's changing our perspective of what it means to follow Jesus. And he wants to teach people to take up the cross. That's a big theme in Luke, to take up the cross. <clears throat> All right. Um, how should I respond when hanging out with friends who curse 
or play foul music celebrating sinful behavior, some of them being believers. Thanks so much. With wisdom, Kells, <laughs> Kells B uh, has this question. I, I say with, with great wisdom, there isn't really a pat answer that I, sh that I think I can give. Um, there are times where I think that talking to people, you know, and about the issues, hey, this, I think this is a problem. There's other times where you're like, this issue is a dead issue. There's no point in talking to them about it. Um, and, and I think wisdom is what's required to know the difference between these things. Um, one thing I'll throw in there is when do you decide that you will not hang out with them is when it's stumbling you, right? When you are stumbling into sin because of the sin of others around you, then that means that you can't really do outreach to that person because they're the one reaching you with sin. And so if that's the case, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, cussing and foul music that celebrate sinful behavior are not the biggest issues. I think they do matter, right? We're, we're to we're to be people who have godly tongues and godly words and words that, that, that are, are no coarse jesting, right? Like no coarse jesting and, and no foul language out of our mouths and culturally foul language shifts and changes at different times. And it seems to be true that we're, this is my, my, thoughts right now on this is that we're at a shift right now where words that were more foul in the past are, are becoming less and less foul, although it's because of their common usage. Um, but I'm, but I can't tell if that means, oh, they're, they're losing their foulness because they're so commonly used. They're becoming like empty words. They don't, it doesn't quite feel that way to me in many cases in some of those words. Yeah. But most of them, maybe not. <laughs> um, instead, it seems as though there's just a callousness towards having a clean tongue. So I think these things do matter. I think these things are important, but I, I don't think they're the highest level of importance. Um, we, here we're at, at danger of straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. So make sure to be acting in love and grace towards those who you disagree with on these issues and may God give you wisdom. There's no flat answer. If you do rebuke, here, here's, let me give you this. This might help you a little bit with wisdom. Galatians 6, right? It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, right? This, you could say, hey, here's a transgression. This is the thing you're doing that's, that's a problem. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Notice that the only words that are about you helping them is the words restore him, which implies the direction is, uh, if you do talk to your friends about these issues, that you do it to build them up, not to just uh, create problems, right? But you seek to restore them. You're seeking to bring them back. There's a hopefulness in your interaction. You have to be spiritual, so you can't just know they're wrong. You have to actually be spiritual in the way in the way you behave. So you check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, you have to do it in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so that's that's good because when we correct, we tend to like many of us, we tend to come on a little strong. And so do this in a spirit of gentleness, and keep watch on yourself because this moment of correcting others can be tempting for you to sin against them. So it's interesting, this is back to what Jesus says about pulling the plank out of our eye. It doesn't mean there's no issue in your friends to deal with. It just means that your first issue is to deal with your issues before you can possibly deal with theirs. And I try to apply that in my life as well. And I do it perfectly every time. Um, Brendan Carroll has a question. What does twilight mean when the Passover lamb is sacrificed? Is it the start of the 14th or end leading to the 15th, the first day of unleavened bread? Oh, um... I can't remember. <laughs> I studied this a while back uh, when I was doing my, um, you know, but what I'll do is I'll give you, I'll give you the, the video where I taught on this. So um, 
when I taught about Passover, I dealt specifically with this in great detail. So I'm, I'm actually going to grab the link and I'm going to toss it into the live chat right now. Um, that's the video I did on the Passover. And I talk about the timing of the sacrifice as well. And I just can't remember right now off the top of my head. I looked into these details. Brendan, I, I will point you to that video. I'll put it there. I'll put it in the video description as well when we're done. And I hope that you guys find it useful. Um, the timing of, of the elements of Passover, the week of Passover, including when the lamb is evaluated to see if it is considered worthy for the sacrifice are really significant for the timing of Jesus's actual um, sufferings. And it's really powerful, beautiful stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I'll move forward to the next question. Number eight, this is anonymous. It says, my disabled daughter with MS was abused by her ex, hit, pushed her head through a wall, broke her jaw two times requiring three surgeries, told her he's going to have her killed and more. I know I should forgive him, but how? Um, it makes me angry just reading, uh, just reading this. Um, and that's totally um, an appropriate response. Um, how? We, we recently heard, me and my wife recently heard a message. We were listening to uh, several different teachers and stuff the past couple weeks. And we recently heard a message where forgiveness was being discussed and it was talked about and it was interesting my wife was the one who pointed out a, a, a problem with the perspective most of what the pastor said was great like healthy and encouraging and helpful but when he talked about forgiveness he he affirmed what scripture says right but missed something that i think might help you um what scripture says is forgive as christ forgave you right i think it's in ephesians 4 um Verse 32, let me show it to you guys. Notice how the Bible qualifies it. Because oftentimes on these challenging issues, the Bible is like nuanced and careful in a way that really helps us with these hard things. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But that's not where it ends. As God in Christ forgave you. Now I want you to think for a moment about how God forgave us. Jesus is willing to forgive us. Right? God is willing to forgive us. He sends his son to die on the cross for our sins. But do we receive that forgiveness merely from the willingness of God and the, even, the, even the sacrifice of Christ? Do I receive the forgiveness? And the answer is no. The forgiveness is applied, fully applied, or, or I could use even a, a more robust word, restoration is applied when repentance takes place. I think that that should be your posture towards this person as well, right? That there's... Um, there's a, there's a slightly clumsy way of saying it, but it helps. Um, and that is forgiveness is not the same as restoration. But I'm going to, I'm going to, this is what it helped me years ago when I heard uh, Carl Westerlin, one of my favorite guys, <laughs> share this uh, a teacher I had many years ago. And um, I would say it a little differently though now. And that is because I think that that just is forgiveness. The full forgiveness, forgiveness fully achieved, forgiveness full circle is restoration. So I'm going to suggest forgiveness offered is not the same as forgiveness received. And here's um, the way that I think Carl Westerlin put it, which was great. He says, what we do is towards those who've sinned against us, who have not repented, who have not truly come to repentance, what we do is we take the cross posture. Hey, my arms are open. As Jesus on the cross, his, his arms are open. And yes, this is just a metaphor. Um, 
but his arms are open and the openness of God towards all the sinners of the world to say, I am here uh, dying for you. I'm willing to forgive. I'm offering forgiveness. I'm paying for forgiveness, but it won't be received until you come to me in repentance. That is our attitude towards those who sin in these deep and powerful ways. We like this, this person, he broke her jaw two times requiring three surgeries, told her he's going to kill her and more. Um, you just need to have the attitude of Lord. I'm willing to forgive them. My heart wants to see real repentance in their life. And if, if you have in your head as a Christian, if you have, Hey, if they were to, if they were to really change, were to really come with genuine repentance, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to forgive them. That's when there's a, a cancer in your soul, right? That's when as a Christian, there's a major problem there, but the offer of forgiveness must be like the cross. That's how I understand this. I think that's how God does it. I think that that's implied in several places in scripture um, here in forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. But also when you look at other things in scripture, they don't make sense if you don't have this attitude. So Paul talks about kicking a guy out of the church because he's he's having horrible sexual sins. He's sleeping with his mother-in-law basically. And um, he says, yeah, kick him out of the church. Couldn't that guy have just turned to the church and said, hey, I thought you had to forgive me, right? And the church could say, oh, we're ready and willing and wanting to forgive you as soon as you repent, right? That this is, this is a healthy thing for us to have an offer of forgiveness, right? But not, not full circle and not restoration that comes when someone actually repents. I hope that helps you. Katie's online name says, if you spend years lovingly bringing scripture to someone in a religion that is corrupt, that corrupts it, hoping to open their eyes and fail, is it wrong to finally say they direct, uh, say directly they've been deceived that that religion is a lie. Uh, I, Katie's online name, I do not think that that's wrong at all. I think that this is, again, it's a situation of wisdom. Jesus, he speaks to some people with these really gracious, really kind words, and to others, he's, he says, like, you brood of vipers, you know. And so, or was that John the Baptist? Um, but, you know, you could, you could find things that Jesus said here that were similar. Uh, hypocrites, right? Uh, whitewashed tombs. That I mean, to, full of dead men's bones. Okay, that's not a compliment. <laughs> so, um, I think it kind of depends. Um, there's there's a time to tell somebody like you're deceived. Um, what I recommend is just what Galatians six said earlier. Galatians six verse one is you just guard your heart, make sure that you're not doing it out of anger or out of any carnality, um, but out of like I, this is this is this is just meant to shock them awake. Yes, I think it's okay to tell them they're deceived because. Well, they are. So it just depends on the wisdom of the moment and the needs of the moment. Um, one rule is, you know, uh, to the, to, to those who are arrogant and proud, we, we tend to be more strong in our refutations, right? We tend to give them the, the things that will expose their pride to those who are humble. We want to rebuild them. We want to restore them. We want to strengthen them. Um, but I think there's, yeah, may God give you wisdom. May he lead you by the spirit in what needs to be said at what time there is no one rule. Um, on those things. Um, and scripture, uh, let me back up a little bit. And scripture seems to affirm this because again, I want to think biblically, there are just, there are just um, so many examples, right? So many examples, right? Like uh, Nathan, he comes to David to, con to convict him of his sin with Bathsheba, but he does it in such a careful and thoughtful way. He tells him a story about this man stealing a sheep and killing it. And David gets infuriated. And then Nathan goes, David, you're the man. And that was like a really careful way of doing it. Then we have others who who just go out 
and and shout at at like at like people going by like you know like Jonah judgment's coming <laughs> and so um what Jesus said about him and John the Baptist and how their ministries were different may apply here is that wisdom is justified by all her children there are different situations and scripture seems to affirm that too James has a question hello pastor mike could you please explain and give your take on the open theist position called dynamic omniscience and how biblical or unbiblical the position is. Um, I can't I can't do that off the cuff to explain dynamic omniscience carefully, certainly not in a way that I would feel confident I've represented it well. Um, yeah, I'm sorry, James. I'll, I'll say this is that um, uh, I find open theism very concerning. I find also, interestingly, that the open theists I've interacted with online have generally been rude. <laughs> and so if you're an open theist and you're watching this, may I encourage you that if, if you want to have healthy interactions with people, um, snark being, being the theme of your movement is probably not, um, probably not going to be the, uh, the most effective way to do that. But, um, but yeah, um, open theism as I'm familiar with it, and I can't speak to the term dynamic omniscience, but tends to try to promote itself by putting a really nice coat of paint on it. I'm just being straight with you guys. Open theism is the idea that God, and I'm going to put it my way, they're going to disagree with me, that God doesn't know everything. He just doesn't know everything. Uh, but different ways you can put coats of paint on this, I'm going to call it coat of paint because I think it's it's an, it's <clears throat> a non-substantial response. <coughs> But the um, the open theism would say, hey, some would say, hey, um, God, he knows everything that can be known, right? But he doesn't know your decisions because you haven't made them yet. So he doesn't know for sure what those will be. And my thought is, so what 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 then this open theist wants to say is God does know everything. It's just that that's a thing that can't be known. And I'm like, nah, I think it can be known. That seems silly to me. And I set it aside as silly. Um, so then it becomes like a... A, 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 a battle where you're like, well, open theism is wrong because it's this. And, and open theists are like, well, that's not even what it is. We teach God knows everything. Eh? And, and to me, it seems like we're playing a game here. We're playing a game here. You are, you teach that there are, are things that God does not know, <clears throat> that the Bible seems to affirm very clearly that God does know. And I'm opposed to that because I think it's unbiblical. Um, and I'll now be skewered by um, snarky open theists. <laughs> Not that I hate you guys, but just it's happened many times. All right, number eleven. JCE Tao says, How do you know if God called you to be single? All right, let's go to because yeah, let's go to the passage that talks about this. Um when it talks about singleness in scripture, uh, let's go to verse eight of first Corinthians seven. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single. This is not Something a lot of people realize. Scripture suggests that singleness is a good and, and positive thing. This was this was countercultural to the Jewish people. It was countercultural to the Greek people. The Jewish people thought they were under the mandate, and I've, yeah, I've done the work to say this, that they were under the mandate of be fruitful and multiply. And this didn't apply just to Adam and Eve, and it didn't apply just to mankind as a whole. It applied to individuals, each individual. And so everyone was supposed to be fruitful and multiply. So um, that was their view. The Greeks actually had 
laws on the books, the Romans, I should say, that required people to get remarried after a divorce so that they could have kids because the Romans wanted more citizens so they could have more people, so they could have a bigger army, so they could conquer more people. So they had like military reasons for wanting to tell people they had to be married. Um, but Paul, he goes against all this and along with Jesus, because Jesus, when he was questioned, Right. When, when the, when the apostles somewhat sarcastically said, well, if you can't get a divorce for whatever reason you want, then why you shouldn't even get married? And Jesus is like, well, you know, if you can accept that, that's fine. Don't get married. <laughs> and they probably were like, oh, I, what? Paul reinforces this, right? To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul was single either because of a death or a previous divorce, which seems unlikely. I'm just saying it's, it's, these are the possibilities. Um, or because he had never been married. Um, one of those three things, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Okay. So here I'm going to suggest that here's a test for you. How, how good are you at doing the self-control thing as a single person? Are you walking in purity? And if you're like, uh, no, uh, no, um, not never have never, never have experienced that. Then maybe you should get married, right? Because he says it is better to marry than to burn with passion to the married. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. You talked about not divorcing and, and, and then getting back together if there's a problem in your marriage. Then verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. This doesn't mean that it's not inspired. Um, it means, I think he's just is saying, I'm not quoting Jesus. Jesus didn't talk as much about singleness, right? Um, um, oh, excuse me. Um, this is about, this is in the divorce and remarriage study I did, this verse. Um if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Um, yeah, if you're married to a non-believer, you shouldn't get married to a non-believer. But if you are, make it work, stay together, love them, honor Christ, all that. Don't divorce them. Um, for the unbelieving husband is made holy. And I'm going to get back to the singleness. Here we go. Verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Now that's where you get the calling thing. Cause I would, okay. If it wasn't for this verse, I would just simply respond by saying, uh, James or excuse me, uh, JCE Tao. What I would say is, Hey, you, you get to choose. Are you going to be single or are you going to be married? But here we have a, a, a statement about God's calling, right? Married is good. Single is good. Even better as far as for the sake of serving the kingdom, right? You can do a lot more ministry without having to take care of a family. Um, you're taking care of your, your, the body of Christ, the local family. Uh, but there's this idea of God's called him. So then it says, this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call? Wait, we had the word call here and we were interpreting it, right? J-C-E Tao. We were interpreting it to mean a calling on my life. But then the next time the word call is used, it's talking about what, what your, what your condition was when you got saved, right? When you were at the time of your call, when you first heard the gospel and received it, were you already circumcised? Don't try to remove the marks of circumcision, which was a weird surgical thing they did actually try to do back then. And he goes, don't try to do that. Don't try to, you know, become uncircumcised, right? Were you uncircumcised when you came to Jesus? Well, then don't get circumcised. Just live, live godly in the life that you had before because circumcision doesn't count for anything and nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's again, this is interesting. He's, he's moved off of singleness and marriage. He's talking about all sorts of issues now. Were you a bond servant when called? Don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about it. Just serve the Lord as a bond servant. And then Paul adds this beautiful 
um, uh, emancipation thing in here. He says, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Hey, if don't worry about it. If, if you're if you're a bond servant, if you're a slave, you're in Christ, you're Christ's slave. You're just serve him unto the Lord and honor God and all that. But hey, if you can get your freedom, go for it. Because what? You'll have more freedom to serve Christ. Not just for your personal freedom, but for the glory of Christ in your life. You can serve him that much more. You will control your schedule. For he who was called in the Lord as a bond servant is a freed man of the Lord. You know, your greater identity is in Christ as a free person. Likewise, he who is free when is when is when called is a bondservant of Christ. We're all slaves of Christ, right? So that so this this is the great equalizer. Um, a, a slave of man is free in Christ. A, a free an, a, a free man is a slave in Christ. Um, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. So again, don't enter into those conditions. But if you were called that way, don't worry about it. Just serve the Lord. Then we read on. I know this is a lot of scripture. I'm reading a lot of scripture. Does that bother you? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know it doesn't. Uh, now concerning the betrothed, um, he talks about people who are, it's a little complicated here, this passage, but he, about those who are um, engaged to be married or they have the chance to be married and maybe they're all kind of being talked about together. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. There were some present issues going on. And because of those, it was convenient for a person not to get married. We've, we all have seasons of life where it's like, now's not the time. Um, they were going through a group season where it wasn't a good time. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Interesting. During at least that season. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. Now that's interesting. Because he has a, a statement earlier about being called. Now, I'm, as a guy who's single for a long time, <laughs> I'm working through this with you patiently because I know how important it is. Um, there was a statement about, are you called to be single? But then calling was all about just what condition were you in when you got saved? And so by implication, right? He's just saying like, if you're if you're single when you, when you came to the Lord and now you're asking me, should I get married? I'm letting you know, hey, um, because of the current situation, at, you know, in Corinth at the time, it's probably better for you, you know, not to seek a wife. But what if you don't take that advice? Well, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. And so why is Paul suggesting they don't get married? Oh, well, just because those who marry will have worldly troubles. There's a current issues that are going on and I would spare you those troubles. Um, that's it. So. What I'm suggesting here is, even though there's a sense of calling affirmed, that calling is more about the current situation your life is in, and you have a decision to make, and if you decide to get married, you have not sinned. You don't have, as a single Christian, you don't have to look at yourself and go, do I have the stamp called to be single? Therefore, if I marry, I'm doing something wrong. And that is not the case, because even those blanket who are single, right? If you marry, you have not sinned. That's a blanket statement for us, okay? It's not a sin. Okay, it's just different. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who are who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. This is the benefit of singleness. You can serve God more with your time. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. It's not a sin, but it is a different life focus and his interests are divided. So he can't do as much 
service to God um, outside of his home. His home is service to God, but it limits his outreach and ministry. Um, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about, same thing with the woman, right? She's less ministry that she can do if she's taking care of family, kids, husband, home. And for a, a husband, same issue, family, kids, husband, home, or wife, home, <laughs> taking care of those things. So I say this to your own benefit, uh, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Then there's this uh, complicated passage I won't get into in detail, just read it. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. Again, he affirms. Anyone, you want to get married, it's not a sin. You don't have the single stamp forced upon you. But whoever's firmly established in his heart, being so in your own heart, your own will, you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay single, right? You're under no necessity. You have your desire under control. That is, you're not stumbling in sexual sin and stuff because you're not consumed by that, but you're actually, you're able to handle singleness. And you've determined in your heart, you determined, you determined, not God determined for you, but you determined in your heart, right? To keep her as betrothed or to not get married, he will do well. And this would apply to the woman as well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. Hey, it's good to get married. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better because you can serve God more. A wife is bound to her husband. Um, and he goes on to talk about other things after that. Um, so, yeah, I think that the bottom line there is it is actually up to you. I, I say all that. I went through all that in the scripture that deals the most with the singleness issue. It is up to you. It is up to you. And the tests that we had in scripture were like, you know, how controlling are you of your own passions? Are you able to handle yourself in godliness and holiness? Or is there ongoing uh, burning with lust, right? In which case you just should get married. <laughs> um, are you determined in your own heart? I'm not, I'm not really determined. Well, then go ahead and get married. Oh, but I don't know. Well, then wait. Like these are decisions you can make. Why? Because marriage or singleness are both avenues to honor God in different ways. And so they're both permissible to you. You get to actually choose. At least, unless God gives you some special word. I think that's the truth. Blue Clouds has a question. In Luke chapter 8, 45, Jesus asks who touched his garment while in a crowd. Does Jesus really not know who had touched him or that this miracle would take place? Thank you, Pastor Mike. Um, let's just read it real quick. This is about the woman who had this issue of uh, blood. And um, she was bleeding. She had ongoing bleeding, which again, think of the uncleanness that this produces in that culture. But also it says she'd suffered many things at the hands of doctors. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about, right? When um, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Oh, this is so many people's experience in life. Uh, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? Um, so at, at first glance, I would read this and I think, well, Jesus may well have known and he's only asking because he wants her to come forward. That is quite possible when he says, who is it that touched me? But as we read on, that seems a little less likely. When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. Um, he's not saying, I know who touched me, right? Here he only affirms his knowledge that that power has gone out from him. So um, I'm, in a, I'm inclined to think that he did not know at the moment 
consciously he was not aware of the woman ha uh, being the one who had touched him or perhaps that he he didn't even know that she was going to or that somebody was going to maybe he didn't know so maybe he didn't know we don't know that okay maybe he knew someone was going to touch him but didn't know who it was going to be um how do we reconcile this with jesus being omniscient my my statement here would be this is that on on a human level jesus is is not always accessing his omniscience on a divine level he always has omniscience even if he's not consciously using it on that human level i think one way of putting this in a way that kind of clicks for people at least for me it does this is an analogy okay so don't take it too far but there's things i know that i'm not presently thinking of and it's not that I don't know that, it's that I'm not thinking of it. Like there's a sense in which I have more knowledge than I'm presently aware of, right? As you th think of something after the fact, you go, that's right, it's this. And you think, oh, I remember this now. It happens to me all the time in Q&As. I think there's a sense in which Jesus has perfect total omniscience, but on a human level, he's choosing to limit himself and not engage in that omniscience at all times. This is part of him living the human experience truly and genuinely as he goes about life. And if you and me can have knowledge we're not accessing at all times, certainly Jesus can. And if he's God and man, he can have all knowledge and not access at all times. A simple way to describe this is with vision. If I close my eyes, I don't lose the ability to see, right? The capacity of sight. But because I've pulled the, 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 these lids, this flesh over my eyes, I no longer see. I see nothing right now. But, I, but you wouldn't say I'm blind. And so Jesus, in a sense, I think, closes his eyes to the use of his omniscience, of his all knowledge, as he's walking this human earth, limiting himself by choice and only knowing those things the Father tells him to. Only doing the things the Father tells him to. Following the moment-by-moment, step-by-step instructions of the Father. So that Jesus on many occasions, didn't know something consciously, presently, though he could have if he simply chose to open his eyes to the omniscience and the all knowledge that he has. But he chose not to because this is part of him submitting himself and yielding to humankind. Um, and so we get this also earlier in Luke where it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge, right? He, he grew in wisdom. Well, I, how do you grow in wisdom? So he was never sinning. There was never a sinful lack of knowledge. But there was not accessing his omniscience at all times. He kept his eyes closed a lot, right? <laughs> I'll put it that way. So I hope that that helps you, um, which is why I'm totally comfortable saying that he didn't, he likely didn't know which woman at the moment had touched him. And he could have accessed that knowledge. He could have peaked, so to speak, with his omniscience, but chose not to because he was walking in humility and submission to the Father and only using those, those things as the Father told him to. All right, uh, number 13, John Ernest says, I heard a pastor claim that two-thirds of Jews will die during the Great Tribulation and the ones who survive will become Christians. Is this what Paul was referring to with all Israel will be saved? Well, the two options for all Israel will be saved are, that I'm aware of, um, A, um, all Israel in the sense of a, a future revival for the people of Israel, in which case you could try to connect it to what happens in Revelation. Um, so there'll be like a national revival in Israel. Or B, all of those who are truly Israel of the same faith as Abraham had, they will all be saved. And perhaps both are true, but the phrase all Israel will be saved in, in Romans um, 
um, it does follow Paul saying, um, not all, not all are Israel who are of Israel, but all who are children of promise are the seed of Abraham. And then he goes on to say, all Israel will be saved. But he follows that up in Romans 11 by talking about a great revival that will happen in Israel, right? That, that there will be this great revival. Let, well, let's just look at the text. Um, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Don't act like all the Jews are, are, are gone from God's grace and love because I'm one of them, Paul says. And so is Jesus and all the apostles. Um, and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? And we get a story of Elijah, right? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself. 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. So at Elijah's time, he Elijah felt like he was the only Jew who was faithful to God. But there were 7,000 whom God still had, you know, faithful to him. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, there are a, there are a small number of Jews who are saved, showing that God has not rejected Israel at, at the time of the first century, right? But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's actually one of my favorite verses. <laughs> what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they would not see and ears that they would not hear down to this very day. This is the current hardening of Israel. David, as David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. But is that where it ends? He goes, so I asked, did they stumble in in order that they might fall? Is the purpose of, the, of, of Israel having rejected Christ, uh, at least largely, but not entirely because the remnant is still there. Is the purpose of that so God can just ruin and end Israel? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Okay, there's a purpose to the current work of God in the Gentiles, and it's to create a longing in Israel to have their Messiah. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness, will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you as Gentiles, speaking to you Gentiles, and as much as I'm an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. I want them to long for this thing that God is doing in you to happen in them, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconcili the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Paul clearly is talking about a revival in Israel, um, because he doesn't mean total rejection. He doesn't mean all of Israel has rejected God, but... Therefore, um, the rejection here is a large part of Israel, but then what would the acceptance be? What would the large part of Israel accepting Jesus, the Jews accepting Jesus be? If the dough offered is as first fruits is holy, so the, is the lump holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and here he goes on to do an analogy. He's like, hey, you guys, Gentiles, you're like, you're like grafted branches. You're like foreign branches put into the tree, glued onto the tree, so to speak. And, um, Hey, uh, don't be arrogant toward the toward the original branches, right? If if it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Okay, well that's true, sure, right, right. The the rejection of the from the Jews led to the salvation of the Gentiles, right? As as they were driven from the synagogues into the Greek marketplaces, right? Um, they were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not be proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. 
I'm going to keep reading here for, so we can get the, the full context. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who've fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, which means believing. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from... Uh, for if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, Gentiles, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, right, the descendants of Abraham, into um, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? How natural and beautiful it is when Jews come to their own Messiah. <laughs> it's wonderful. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening, right, it doesn't include the remnant, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, has come in. There's going to be something else, something that happens after that. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Here's the phrase, all Israel will be saved. It seems to include Jews and Gentiles and a future revival for Israel, which is why I started by suggesting both of those options and then suggesting they're both true. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So I think that there's this future time coming when we will see um, a great revival. Um, the two-thirds of the Jews ultimately then comes down to um, uh, those who die during Revelation. It comes down to how exactly literal do we take this? Um, these are questions you need to consider. And um, should I conclude then only one pushback I'd have against what your pastor might have said? this pastor may have said, is the idea that every living Jew who doesn't die will in fact be messianic, will be following Jesus. That I, I push back on. I'm going to say just because there's a great revival doesn't mean there can't be like a reverse remnant, a smaller number who still reject. Okay, I, Or that only the non-believing ones will die as those two-thirds in Revelation. At least that's my impression. All right, 14, 14. Leslie uh, Farquharson says, could my generalized anxiety disorder and OCD be a demonic issue rather than a mental health issue? I'm a believer, but I suffer from both of these issues and I feel trapped. Um, let me answer a, a, with a few observations. Um, uh, I'm not, and this is something that's important that you realize, I'm not qualified to understand how to handle your general anxiety disorder and your OCD. There are elements of it that overlap onto spiritual things like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a great memorization scripture. No matter how anxious I feel, no matter how OCD I feel about something, I'm not forced to sin. I have a choice to choose to honor Christ right now. That's super important to remember at all times. Um, you know about taking your anxieties to God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're, it's going to heal this disorder that you've got. Um, my personal perspective on this, as I try to put together different things I see in scripture, as I see in scripture that sometimes physical ailments, even things like, like say, um, uh, psychological problems are caused by demons. And sometimes they're not, they're just there. And so my answer to you is, I don't know. I don't know in your situation what the causes are. I want to say this that if you, if anyone out there is struggling with mental disorder, it's not uncommon for them to over-spiritualize the very difficulties that they have. And so unless you have somebody coming alongside you who's spiritually mature, who's also affirming with you, yeah, there's spiritual issues going on here, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't lean too heavily on that for that reason, but nor would I discount it. Um, my, my current thinking on this, and I could be wrong, uh, 
I could easily be wrong, but my, my current understanding of this is that um, mental disorders are a thing in, in and of themselves. And when demons assault you, it can have physical imp physical impacts on your brain as well as your attitude, as well as your physical body. So let, let's take it this way. Um, Satan attacked Job and one of the ways he did this was he created these boils, these sores all over his body that were very painful. It was a demonic attack, but it was a physical problem. Now, are all the physical problems demonic attacks? No. Sores can be caused by contagions and they can be caused by Satan. Maybe using contagions, I don't know. Um, a, uh, a The death of his family was, was caused by Satan, but also caused by things like a fire. And so um, we shouldn't bifurcate and suggest that my mental struggles or anxiety or issues are A, spiritual, or B, physical. They can be both, or they can just be physical. So there's probably a physical thing going on. It may or may not be triggered by demonic things. And I would seek counsel for both of those issues, right? I would look for spiritual counsel and advice, and I would look for medical counsel and advice as well. Why not do both since both are probably factors even if it was demonic, it doesn't mean that you couldn't be helped by um, good medicine, assuming it's good. I'm not, that's not my area. Um, anyway, I hope that my rambling there has helped you in some sense. Leslie, God bless you and give you wisdom and help as you try to work through this and understand it. Um, and give you clarity to take away the anxiety that there is in addressing your anxiety. Chris Road says, what do you think of Rohr's claim? That's Richard Rohr, I'm assuming. That creation was the first incarnation of God. Um, I think it's blasphemous. <laughs> I think it's so obviously blasphemous. And it's the opposite of what Genesis is trying to teach us. So the book of Genesis is written in a context culturally where the people around them, it, it, see, what you have to understand is part of the writings of the Old Testament are written as a response to pagan religions, as a rebuttal to pagan religions. And so um, the Genesis account of creation, the way it's written, it is entirely God who makes something non-personal that is the heavens and earth, the universe. He makes the sun and it's not like in Japanese religion, this, you know, the, 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 or in Japanese religion, the islands of Japan are like the body of this dead God. Um, or in um, various stories, Enuma uh, Elish, we've got um, the, the cutting open of a God and the splitting into, into sky and, and land or sky and water. And you have a fight with chaos and stuff like that. And you have the personification of all these different things, the earth, the sun, the stars, it's all personified rivers, things like this. These are all personified. Gods are identified with creation. Genesis is a comp is, is combating this by simply saying God spoke it into existence and it's just a thing. It's just a thing he made. The sun is not a deity. And so to personify it and then and then to go, as Richard Rohr seems to be doing, a step further. He's a heretic, by the way, if anybody doesn't know. <laughs> he's like, like, I don't say this because I'm just a meanie. Like, he's like legitimately an actual false teaching heretic who should not be considered a source for anybody. Um, um, but he's but he's been a guest on Oprah many times. So did I even need to comment beyond that? <laughs> so um, Richard Rohr's claim, though, that creation is, quote, the first incarnation of God reverses the purpose of Genesis in making creation 
the glorious masterpiece, the artwork that shows the glory of the God who made it, and it turns it into a being. And this being is to be worshipped, could be worshipped now. If it's the incarnation of God, I can worship it, right? But that's exactly what he was fighting. God says, for instance, in, in Exodus, he's combating these pagan uh, pantheistic and polytheistic things. He says, don't make an image of anything in creation and worship it because God's not like anything in creation. So this, this is the, this is, um, in other words, uh, Richard Rohr would get kicked out of the temple <laughs> for saying these sorts of things. This is because he does not have a Christian religion. He, he's got his own thing. I hope that helps. Um, Jared Matthews says, what is your opinion on boot camp churches such as Elevation and New Spring that say their church is for unbelievers and is not a permanent space for believers to remain? Um, I don't, I don't know what my opinion is about that. I, I do think that, um, it, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, it strikes me as strange because it's not what I'm used to. Okay. It's not what I'm comfortable with. Um, it strikes me off the cuff, that idea. I'm just taking it as you've described it. Cause I have not looked into elevation and I've never heard them. I've never heard the term boot camp church. So I'm just responding Jared to your, your comment here. Um, my concern is that the description of the church in the New Testament isn't that. So this just seems to combat a little bit with Ephesians where it talks about us, right? We, we, have, we have these leaders in the church. We have the body who's there for the building up of the church. That is the church is a gathering of believers. It's not a gathering of unbelievers. And the purpose of believers in the body having different gifts to be used to minister to one another according to Ephesians that seems to not happen. So I guess what I would say is if your church is a boot camp church and you don't intend for people to be there, it's a church for unbelievers and not for believers. If someone really says that, then I just want to say that's not a church. It, now, don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean it's wrong to do it. I, it's probably just wrong to call it a church. If, you know, at least a full, full on church. That's, that's my response off the cuff from the question you asked there is that that just doesn't seem to define church isn't the building. It's the gathering of believers, the body of Christ in the name of Christ to minister to each other and bless one another. Um, so, um, is it wrong to have evangelical gatherings? Not at all. Is it wrong to have outreaches? Not at all. Those are great ideas. But if that becomes, if it blocks the building up of the body of Christ in the way that we're meant to organically through the gifts of the spirit, then, then that's going to be unhealthy for people. And, and maybe someone feels like they're making, Oh, it's fine. Cause I told you, you should leave after a while, but, um, something seems off about that. That being said, um, I'm still glad if they're preaching Jesus <laughs> and, um, I haven't looked much into these groups yet. We'll see. Maybe one day. John Pement says, is the virgin birth an invention by Matthew to buff up the gospel narrative? Uh, the double fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy sounds like a convenience interpretation. Does the virgin birth matter? Um, there's This is too much for me to do here towards the end of a Q&A to get into in detail. Um, let me take it, re I'll reverse the order here. Um, the double fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy sounds like a convenience interpretation. I would disagree with that. I think that when you look at Isaiah's prophecy and you look at it in, uh, take two factors in. One, uh, look at the the ensuing chapters of Isaiah, 
to show that this virgin birth was not just about Isaiah's thing. Like it looks like a double fulfillment in Isaiah before you get to the New Testament. That's all I'm going to suggest there. Um, and two, Matthew's general use of scripture is, oh man, I've got to, I've got to give you guys the video on this. Um, let me see. Um, how, what do I even type to find it? Um, I have a video on this, on how um, Matthew uses the term fulfill. <laughs> um, let me see. Is this the one? Oh, oh I want to have the playing. Um, this is this is the video. Yes. Okay. This is a video where I get into this in detail. Okay. And part of it is, it's not that the double fulfillment thing is, oh, that's convenient. It's rather, I'm going to suggest the double fulfillment thing or various kinds of fulfillment are consistent old and new Testament throughout the Bible. And it is us who come with a rigid, um, prophecy is always and only a prediction of a future event with great detail and all this kind of thing. And when we look at it that way, we miss so much of scripture and this is undeniable, I think. So I'm going to give you a, a link to a video where I talk about this. I'm going to put it in the live chat right now. I will also put that video in the description down below where I get into this in detail um, about these different kinds of things of fulfilling. The Isaiah passage in particular, yeah. I, I don't I don't think it's a convenient thing. I think what we're doing is we're we're loading this very narrow view of what fulfill means. And then we're saying, hey, Matthew, you're not really fitting my narrow view of fulfill. So I think you're making stuff up. But when you look at the use of the term in scripture, you realize we were the ones being narrow. It wasn't Matthew being um, convenient. So, so no, I don't think so at all. I don't think he's trying to buff up the gospel narrative in any way, shape, or form. And yeah. Um, anyway, I, I'm sorry I don't have the time to get into greater detail on this. Maybe one day I'll do a video on that topic. Joshua Van de Creek says, I'm currently attending a public school. I'm wondering how I'm supposed to speak the word and truth of God when I fear that I'll be shut down if I let my true beliefs be heard. Thanks. Joshua. Um, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. <laughs> there is an incredible benefit of not caring. And I don't mean apathy. I mean being okay with it. I am totally okay if you don't respect me because of my beliefs. I am perfectly fine if you think A, B, or C about me because I'm a Christian or because I'm going to openly talk about these things. When you're really okay, when that sits well with you, it will embolden you and it will help you. So I'm going to suggest rather than worrying about how to avoid being shut down, although there's some wisdom there in trying to navigate those issues, it's better to say, like what Jesus said to, this, to the disciples, right? Well, they, they didn't hate you. Well, they hated me first, right? This is, this is something we're called to embrace and accept and just be okay with. And when people reject you, you recognize something. When they reject me just because of me, that's probably my fault. But when they reject me purely because I was in a godly way sharing the truth of Christ with them, they're not even rejecting me. They're rejecting God. This is what happened with Samuel. Samuel was one of the prophets of the Old Testament, one of the greatest. And he was also a judge of Israel. And he went to Israel and told them all these things. They didn't listen in many cases. And finally, they said, we want a king. Samuel went a king. 
And Samuel goes to God and he's like, God, they don't want to listen to me. They don't want to follow your laws on their own. They're demanding a king. They're supposed to be, it's supposed to be a true theocracy where you're their king, but they don't want that. They want, they want someone else. And God tells Samuel something really interesting. He says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. When you look at it that way, you stop being offended and you start praying for those people who are rejecting God. And so I'd encourage you with those things. And I hope that God gives you courage. Um, Oh, I just realized that in question 17, there was a part I didn't answer. So I'm going to go back just a little bit. I don't know what this is going to do later on to anybody else. But um, does the virgin birth matter, you asked, John? Does it matter? Well, it's true. It's a truth about Jesus, and it seems to connect to his deity. And so, yes, it, it matters. It matters, and it's important. And it's often a way of, it's kind of like a, a watershed moment, how people respond to the virgin birth is, is, is frequently how they respond on many other issues, because it's an often an anti-supernatural view that rejects the virgin birth. Um, all right, number 19, we're almost done here. She's Moonlight says, is it selfish or unbiblical for us to sing how he loves us? Sometimes I feel it's selfish that we're singing about ourselves when it's supposed to be a worship song. Shouldn't God get the glory? Um, I think that uh, God gets the glory when you sing about how he loves you. Um, imagine uh, that it's like Valentine's Day and my, 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 my wife, and I'm not saying that we're... We're in, in exactly in a romantic relationship, but there is a husband-wife connection between Christ and the church. Um, and so my wife writes me a card, and, I, and in the card, she just writes in there how much I love her. You love me so much. You make me feel so loved, and and your kindness toward. And and I would be like thrilled to read that card. Like I'd be like, wow, I feel pretty good about myself, you know. And I'm going to suggest that when I sing how you love me, God, that I'm totally giving glory to God. Um, I don't like the sloppy wet kiss line, of course, um, and not because I'm just a prude, but because it's just a it's just a lame line. It's just it's bad poetry, is what it is, <laughs> and it doesn't really fit. Um, it does not really fit. But um, but the uh, but the, the 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 song itself, for the most part, pretty much the rest of the song, I think I really like. Right? He is jealous for me. Right? It loves like a hurricane. I'm a tree bending beneath the waves of his wind and mercy. This is beautiful poetry to me, and he, you know. The hurricane, the force of the wind, right? But but I'm like a tree bending. Um, he's not breaking me. His love is just overwhelming to me. I think this is a beautiful image. I, I like it. I don't have any problem with it. How he loves us, right? Well, look at look at the Psalms. Um, let me take you there. Psalm one thirty six. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good, for his steadfast love endures forever, right? Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast, this is, oh, how he loves us. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters for his steadfast love endures forever. Um, to him who made the great lights. And, and it just goes on to talk about all these th great things God has done. And it sings about what he's done. But then it moves towards Israel. talks about Israel, right? He brought Israel out from among them, right? With a strong hand and outstretched arm. And it keeps repeating this phrase, his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the, sea in, the Red Sea into two. This is stuff he did for them. He made Israel pass through the midst of it. His love endures. He overthrew Pharaoh. He led his people through the wilderness. He struck down great kings. He killed mighty kings, th those people th that the Israelites could not overcome. Sihon, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Bashan. Why? Because he loves them. Because he loves the Israelites. 
And he gave their land as a heritage. Why? Because he loves them as a heritage to Israel. So <clears throat> he remembered us in our lowest state, right? Because he loves us. He rescued us from our foes because he loves us. He gives us food to, to all flesh, right? Because he loves all. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever someone complains about repetition, for instance, in worship songs, I'm always like, have you read the Psalms? <laughs> um, in, in principle, I, I think it's a great song. Um, except that sloppy wet kiss part. That's just bad, clumsy poetry that doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah, the rest is awesome. All right. Um, she's Moonlight says, is it, is it, oh, I'm sorry. That was, she's Moonlight. Um, the last question comes from Mando DeLorean. <laughs> That's a great, great YouTube name. Mando DeLorean says, is it okay to hate Satan? Um, I think hate is a complicated word and it has varied uses in scripture. There's times where in the Bible we, we see um, hate used as an, I, I hate the workers of iniquity, right? The, the Bible writer is saying they hate the workers of iniquity, but is appealing at the same time to God to judge them and not seeking to bring their own judgment to them. I think there's a sense in which it's okay to hate Satan, but not that it leads you into sin. If you're consumed with this hatred for him, that the, the danger is this, what James says, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's a danger. When you are consumed by your frustrations and your irritations and your anger toward the enemy, that can lead you into falling for the, the ploys of the enemy and falling into your own sin issues. Anger and hatred is a danger to you. Um, and so there's a sense in which I, I, I do what the psalmist does and I could say, oh, I, I hate Satan. But Lord, I yield that to you. You are the judge. Lord, you know, like, like, uh, what Michael said, right? The Lord rebuke you, Michael, the archangel, right? He says, the Lord rebuke you. And so we, we say the same thing, the Lord rebuke Satan, rebuke him. <clears throat> um, so that there's a danger of hate consuming you in a way that's unhealthy. I think that it's okay, at least in a sense to hate Satan, but in every sense, no. Um, and so I realize that's complicated, but I think love and hate are both complicated ideas and it's okay for us to kind of like work with, the complexity that's there. And um, I think scripture does that as well. Uh, there's a sense in which you, you can despise things and still walk in love and grace and kindness towards others. Uh, Satan, of course, is just the adversary and there is no, he's different than any human we face. There is no hope. There is no redemption. There is no, nothing else. We already know the future. We know nothing's going to change. So we just submit the future judgment to the Lord in that regard and don't let it consume us, um, but cry out to God. Yeah. So I, I hope that's helped. Sorry, guys. There's, I, I know some of you want to see Moxie, but look, all we have is an empty chair. She's off. I don't know where she's doing something. She'll join us eventually. That's, she goes through whims. That's how it is. But I will be with you guys next Friday. And I'm continuing my, <clears throat> my work uh, on the side, working on the big project on women in ministry and spending way too much time <laughs> on everything because that's just the nature. More has been written on the topic of women in ministry um, probably than any other single topic from scholars um, in recent years and um, over the past like 30 years. And so there's a great deal of material there and working through it. So thank you. Appreciate your prayers uh, in that regard. And I will see you guys in a week. And I apologize. There's no moxie, but you know, we're on the wrong side of heaven. So we have to deal with disappointment. <laughs>